Okay, let me invite your attention to the book of Exodus. We're going to look at Exodus this evening, and I want to begin by saying, uh, quoting something from William Cook. He wrote a book a number of years ago called Success, Motivation, and the Scripture, and I think it's very, very instructive. He says the person that God will use is the person who walks by faith and expects results. Yet so many have a little God concept so that the boldest thing they do is ask God to bless the food. Let me ask you something. Do you want to see God do more in your life, in the life of others, your family, your marriage, your church, than bless the food? I, I, now, I appreciate God blessing the food. I do, like anyone else. But God has more planned for those who know him and walk with him than they often have planned for themselves. And Exodus is going to help us with that and, in fact, will justify a life that sees more than God merely blessing the food. You know, some people in churches, the most exciting thing they've ever done is attend a fellowship meal. God has more in mind than that. God has more in store for his people than that. They are to be marked by the promises of God. They're to be marked by resurrection power. They are to be marked by joy. They are to be marked by victory um, and, and um, progress even through sorrow and even recovery from failure. This is to mark the people of God. And the book of Exodus is going to justify that claim uh, this evening in uh, Exodus. Now, the theme verse uh, I want to read for you is Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And why this is the theme verse will become clear through the balance of this evening's study. There the Lord says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests or mediators and a holy nation. And that was Israel's purpose. Israel was to mediate between God and the world and to produce the ultimate mediator between God and the world, Jesus Christ, and to produce the mediator between Jesus Christ and the world, his church. And that's what we are reading here in Exodus chapter 19. Now the key thought of uh, the book of Exodus is this. It takes off from Genesis. And you read the very first word in uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Exodus. Many of your translations say now. Some will read and. It's the same Hebrew conjunction, it's probably better to translate it and, but now will do. But it implies that there's a connection between Exodus and Genesis. In other words, the story ends in Genesis with the words, and a coffin, or in a coffin. Joseph is in a coffin. Now the book of Exodus begins. With that, we find that Exodus is a continuation of the story of Genesis. And you'll find that to be true with the first word of all the books of Moses in the Pentateuch or Penta um, 5, the five books of Moses. Now, here is the key thought with that. Genesis creates a need that is universal in scope. All the world is under the sentence, the death penalty of God because of its sin. God is a king with a court system and laws and sentences and judgment, and uh, he has leveled the death sentence against the world. We end the book of Genesis with an emblem of that with one of the purest men ever to live in Hebrew history, Joseph in a coffin suffering because of death. 
Now Exodus appears. So Genesis establishes a need. All the world is guilty under sin, under the death penalty of God in death. Now Exodus comes into play. And whereas Genesis establishes a universal need, Exodus meets it. God begins to supply that need in the book of Exodus and a way is formed for Israel and the world to approach God. And that dominates the themes of the entire book of Exodus. Now, here are some of the key items of content. Several topics dominate the book of Exodus. There, again, are births. When God wants to do something, he doesn't do it through a battlefield, but a baby. Lots and lots of them in chapter 1 as uh, Israel multiplies. And then Moses' birth especially is highlighted. Then Moses dominates the content. In fact, he dominates the content from Exodus through the book of Revelation. Everyone has to deal with Moses. Every personality in the Bible has to deal with Moses. Moses is the most prominent character in the entire Bible outside Jesus Christ. He's more prominent than Peter. He's more prominent than Paul. He is even more prominent than King David, who uh, was Israel's king during the golden era of Israel. And so Moses dominates Exodus and really the rest of the Bible. The plagues are very significant in chapter 5 through chapter 12. God challenges Pharaoh and demonstrates that he is the Lord and Pharaoh is not. Then God provides for Israel, verses uh, chapter 13 through verse 18. He provides the necessary food and water and protection for 2 million Jews leaving the support system of, his, of Egypt, going into the wilderness. He takes care of them. Then the law, chapter 19 to verse uh, chapter 24. God provides the law that governs the life of Israel. It's simple, but it's comprehensive. The Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then their application in chapter 21 through 24. Sacrifice dominates the book of Exodus, and this is the top subject in the book of uh, Exodus. It's the longest section of Exodus, and the sacrificial system laid there in the book of Exodus in the tabernacle will prevail in Israel for five centuries until they build the temple, and then all of that is transferred to the operations of the temple. And this is how men and women, boys and girls, meet God is through blood sacrifice. The final dominant issue of the book of Exodus is the mission of God. Now, all of those verses there say that they may know I'm the Lord or that they may know that I, the Lord, there is none like me. God does what he does in all the sections of the book of Exodus that the world may know him. In the book of Exodus, God is on a mission to establish a missionary base in Israel that will eventually result in the message and the Messiah of the mission, Jesus Christ, and will send the gospel into the world. And so you've got Israel as a missionary base. And then you've got Jesus Christ himself, an Israelite, a Hebrew. And the first missionaries that come out of there come from Israel. So all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel being a light to the nations are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the church as it is on mission for God. And all of those verses there relate to that very thing. One author says that God has placed Israel at the crossroads of the nations and the navel of the universe. And as a result, 
Israel is under constant surveillance by the nations. The nations are always watching Israel. And they did there. The Egyptians couldn't help it. The Amalekites couldn't help it as they traveled through the wilderness. The Canaanites feared the coming of the Israelites. In other words, they were under constant surveillance, and they are today. And that's exactly how God planned it. So what God is doing here in this text is that he is advancing his mission in the world to get men, women, boys, and girls redeemed and to provide access to them through blood sacrifice to come to him. So this book is about global redemption. It's about a universal mission where God takes the universal need established in Genesis and meets it through blood sacrifice in the book of Exodus. Now the key contribution of Exodus to the world has been it's provided hope for oppressed peoples. Uh, African Americans in the 19th century under slavery pointed to this often. Martin Luther King Jr. in the Civil Rights era was called often the new American Moses. It has provided hope to those who are oppressed. It has also provided as well laws of the nations. Back in the 19th century, attorneys would not even begin to study uh, for law and for a law degree until they had a degree in theology. Many of, them, uh, many of them pursued theological degrees before they ever went to law school. Now that began to tail off uh, towards the end of the 19th century, but many of them reasoned, how can we establish laws for a nation or for a state if we do not know the law of God? And so the book of Exodus, the laws there, the Ten Commandments especially, have surfaced uh, or have uh, have influenced the authorship of laws. And then finally, uh, or excuse me, uh, uh, thirdly, uh, this is a preview of Christ's cross, the sacrificial system in the tabernacle, and then justification for the mission of God to the world. Now, there are two main divisions that bring this home in the book of Exodus, uh, his desire to reconcile the world to himself. And the first is chapters 1 through 15. Here, God removes Israel out of Egypt. He commences world reconciliation by removing Israel out of Egypt. The second section begins in chapter 16, where he continues world reconciliation by removing Egypt out of Israel. The culture, the theology, the morals, the mindset, the doubt of Egypt had infected Israel, and they needed Egyptian culture removed out of them. Now, God commences world reconciliation first by removing Israel out of Egypt. The first thing he does is that he multiplies Israel. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we find four different ways of saying Israel had a lot of children. They multiplied exceedingly. They grew. They increased in number. God blessed them. And this fulfills that great promise that we have read in Genesis of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God says, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and I will multiply you and make you great before the families of the earth and you shall be a blessing to all the nations. He made that promise 400 years before in Genesis chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 1 proves it is true. So notice this, Israel's under slavery. There's been an elapse of time of 400 years. I mean, who remembers anything 400 years later? Well, that's what's happened here in the text. We've gone four centuries since that promise was first made to Abraham, and Israel's prospects and status has not improved. It's declined. 
There have been four centuries of time elapsed, and Israel is now a slave nation, and even under those circumstances, God kept his promise. Listen to me, dear sweet people. God will always keep his word. You do God's will, and God is going to take care of you, and he did to, to uh, Israel even in slavery after an elapse of four centuries. And so God multiplies Israel. Then he enlists Moses in chapters 3 and 4. Anytime God gets ready to do something, he calls someone to stand with him and to lead the way. He says in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, I have seen their grief. I've heard their groan. I've heard their cry. I have come down. Now, therefore, you go. And that's always the way it is. God gets something stirred in his heart. God gets something stirred in his soul. His compassion begins to boil and brim, and it begins to burst forth, and he calls somebody to go in his place as an envoy. And that's what he did with Moses, and I believe he's doing that with you as well. And then God confronted Pharaoh. God confronted Pharaoh in the plagues. Now, this confrontation was audacious. Moses is simply out of the pasture, in a uh, profession that is odious and abominable to the Egyptians, and he and Aaron go before Pharaoh and stand before the court like they own the place and say, let my people go. We don't care who you think you are. Who you really are is someone who ought to be listening to us as humble as we are. So against protocol, against precedent, Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh, flat-footed, broad-shouldered, leather-lunged, and say, let my people go. It is an audacious confrontation there in Exodus chapter 5, verses, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 13. Now, I want you to notice something in chapter 4. Turn there with me in chapter 4, and look at verses 22 and 23. Chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. He says in chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go. What the Lord is telling Pharaoh is, You have taken my son and you've enslaved him, and I'm coming after him right now. Let him go. Don't mess with him. Don't upset him. Don't bother him. Let Israel go. And so God addresses Pharaoh as if Pharaoh is not a royal, as if he's not dignified. He's a thief. He's a kidnapper. He's a, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, he's a man stealer. Let my son go. This is audacious to the end. It's also painful. It's a painful confrontation. It consists of the plagues. Plagues such as boils on the skin and gnats and flies and locust invasions and infestations. Uh, darkness, cattle collapsing in the field dead while Israel's cattle stand alive and healthy. Um, uh, ten different plagues and ultimately the death of everything that is firstborn from children to livestock. And that is the final one and it gets Pharaoh's attention because in that he ends up losing his own firstborn. These are painful confrontations uh, of plagues. Now, there are two models for understanding the plagues. One, of course, is the supernatural model. That's the one all Christians should embrace. And that says God supernaturally intervened into the life of Israel and Egypt, and he himself caused these plagues, and they were miraculous supernatural works and acts of God. Uh, this um, 
uh, underscores the theological nature of the plagues. You see, the Egyptians and Pharaoh himself looked at Pharaoh as the god Ray, R-E, the god Ray. So his name was really Pharaoh Ray, or his title was really Pharaoh Ray. And as the god Ray, he was capable, they believe, of maintaining order and balance in the universe. And so the only time a storm would come is when he willed it. Otherwise, he kept the storms and he kept natural disasters at bay because he is Pharaoh Ray. And this is what they believe about Moses, most li- uh, about uh, Pharaoh, most likely Ramses too. Well, God comes with the plagues. And God of his own will sends boils on the skin and he turns the Nile River into blood and he sends an a lice and a fly and a locust infestation. And all of a sudden, before the entire nation of Egypt, before all the aristocracy, before all the Jews, before anyone who's paying any attention to Egypt, Pharaoh is shown to be a fraud god. He is not God at all. Instead, he is a fraud. He has no more control over the created order and the Uh, balance and order of the universe than the lowliest slave in Israel. And God shows him up. It is a theological confrontation that takes place here. Now, some of the plagues address some of the gods of Egypt. And so they believe that the Nile River was a god, for example. Well, God takes hold of the Nile River himself and turns the water into blood. God ends up showing them that he is the Lord of all. He is supreme. He's above all of the fraud gods in the world, whether the Nile River or Pharaoh himself. And so there's an evangelistic purpose to the plagues as well. These are dramatic evangelistic messages that begin with the most basic element of the saving gospel of God, and that is God and God alone is the Lord, and there is none other besides him. There is none like him, in fact. And so these, uh, these plagues follow, I believe, the supernatural model. But there is, of course, as you'd be aware, the naturalistic model. And that is the notion that these are just natural occurrences in the life of Egypt, that locust plagues happened often and the flies came often and boils, well, they would break out uh, on folks. And these are just natural occurrences. If God is involved at all in these, and we doubt that he is, some of these scholars would say, then it is only in the timing of them. Well, there's several problems with this view. Number one, there is no evidence that any of these occurred naturally in Egypt. You have to invent that in your head. There's just no documentary evidence that that is the case. You'd have to invent that and imagine that and create that in your head. The second problem with it is, is that it closes the universe and eliminates the Lord as the cause of the plagues. In other words, some do that. They may or may not believe in God, but they take the universe and they close it with a in a cement barrier where God cannot intervene into the world. And so everything that happens is natural, and there's only a naturalistic explanation to everything. Well, ladies and gentlemen, how do you explain Jesus Christ then? Jesus Christ is God come from heaven into the world, and so God came. And so you're incapable of explaining the event of Jesus Christ or anything supernatural. The the, the third thing I would say to you is this. Um, Look at chapter 14 and verse 25. Look at how the Egyptians responded. Chapter 14 and verse 25. 
And God took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Do you know what the Egyptians are saying here? Well, they're saying something similar to what we saw Sunday with the magicians and the enchanters and sorcerers of Pharaoh's court. They told Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this plague of boils, this is the finger of God. This isn't just Moses and Aaron. This isn't just happenstance. God is intervening, and he's been gracious enough to where all he's done is put his finger on us. Better watch out for his hand. It's coming next. Well, the Egyptians in chapter 14 confess what we've known all along by reading the plagues. God is fighting the Egyptians on behalf of Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, if a bunch of pagan Egyptians can get it, why can't some of these scholars get it? They've got more insight than some with terminal degrees. And so uh, the Egyptians got it. They acknowledge God is the Lord. And the final thing is, uh, in Exodus chapter um, 3, verse 12, the Lord calls the plagues a sign. Well, if these are natural occurrences, how can they qualify as a sign? A sign has got to be so different from a natural occurrence, it serves as a sign. It gets attention. But something that's just ordinary and something that is routine and something merely natural, that's not a sign at all. How could that ever be a sign? It's kind of like rain in springtime in Georgia. That's not a sign. That's just normal and natural. But God calls these a sign. Therefore, they've got to be unique enough and stand out enough in order to qualify as a sign. The final thing I'd say to you is this. The naturalistic explanation is probably the one Pharaoh held. And it didn't work out very well for him, did it? Not at all. Pharaoh did not believe early on that God was doing this, and he had a hard time coming to that conclusion. In fact, I don't think he ever did. And it did not work out well for him or for his people. And so God confronted Pharaoh through the plagues. But then God parted the Red Sea in uh, chapter, chapter 14. And that, is, that occupies uh, chapters uh, 14 and 15. The sea is parted in chapter 14. They worship and praise God for it in chapter 15. Now, the parting of the Red Sea was miraculous. There are some that say, well, Israel just passed through the Sea of Reeds in just a few inches of water. What they fail to acknowledge is, is that if that's the case, you've got something of a bigger miracle than parting the Red Sea. If Israel passed through in just a few inches of water, would you please explain to me how the whole Egyptian army drowned? Did they drown in just a few inches of water? What a miracle. The biblical account is much easier to believe, and that is they drowned in a real sea. Um, Charles Rivery suggests that it's probably the northern end of the uh, Gulf of Suez. I, I don't know, but they drowned. They were done. God parted the Red Sea. And the biblical account is much easier to believe. The, the parting of the Red Sea was also costly. It was also costly. This is how Israel is brought out of Egypt. And God in Exodus 6.6 6 and other places calls it a redemption. Israel is redeemed out of Egypt. And in the Exodus, as they pass through the sea, and move on. Now, what is one thing that is absolutely necessary for there to be the redemption of anything? One thing that is necessary for the redemption of something. 
If you have a redemption, you always have a ransom, a price, a cost. So this is called, God himself calls this, a redemption of Israel. What was the price? Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 3. The Lord himself says, I gave Egypt for your ransom. It is so important to God to get Israel out of Egypt, to redeem Israel, that he is willing to sacrifice Egyptians to do it. The Egyptians are the ransom price for Israel's departure, redemption out of Egypt. Please, please, please never underestimate God's commitment to redeeming the world. God's commitment to redeeming your children. God's commitment to redeeming your family. God's commitment to redeeming your friends. God's commitment to redeeming your co-workers. God's commitment to redeeming your neighbors. God's commitment to redeeming all the races. God's commitment to redeeming all the strangers uh, uh, that you don't know. God's commitment to redeeming all those that you do know. God's commitment to redeeming the world. He's willing to pay that price in order to redeem. So God commenced world redemption by removing Israel out of Egypt. But then he continues... He continues world redemption by removing Egypt in Egyptian culture out of Israel. Now, Israel had been in Egypt now for four centuries, and it had taken its toll on their theology, on their morals, on their faith. And so all the difficulty and problems that Moses faces with the Israelites are rooted in many ways to Israel's need to be purged and made holy and cleansed before Almighty God. And there are several ways he does this. He, he removed doubt with faith in chapter 16 through 18. In a number of different places, God has led Israel to a place in chapter 16 and 18. And he, um, he gets them there and they have a need. There's a lack there. He leads them to a place where their need cannot be met. He leads them to a place that is barren. And they legitimately see that if they stay, they're going to die. God is always leading them to a place of death where something cannot happen, where their needs cannot be taken care of. They cry out and complain. Moses turns to God, and God supernaturally intervenes and meets their need. And do you know that's the way it is with the Christian life? That's the way it is with great churches. God leads them to a point where their need cannot be met. God leads you to a point where the need cannot be met. You see no way, you cry out to God, and God intervenes. Now, we're going to be talking about that in a few Sundays as we cover that text uh, on Sunday morning. But this is what takes place here. So Israel should have great faith in the Lord. He removed idolatry with lordship. And real quickly, chapter 19 to chapter 24 is about the law. He renews Israel in the covenant in chapter 19. Chapter 20, he gives a uh, Ten Commandments. And then notice this, and, and you may, when you're reading the Bible, you may skip over this real quickly, but beginning in chapter 21 and enduring to chapter 24, God begins to apply the law to every area of life. Israel's social life, everything in their social life, all the way down to how they use land. Do you know why God applies it that extensively? Because God and God is the Lord. There's not a single area of life that the children of God touch over which God is not 
the Lord. He is Lord of all. And so he is not shy. He is not bashful to take the law and apply it to all of life. And that is a marvelous way to live the Christian life. And then he removed works with grace. He does this in this section about the tabernacle, chapter 25 through chapter 40. And this is a provision. God provides for people to come close to him and walk with him through a sacrificial system that previews the death of Jesus Christ at the cross. And it culminates in the death of Jesus Christ at the cross. So this is a provision, but it is also a priority. This section, chapter 25 through chapter 40, occupies, beloved, 38% of the book of Exodus. There is not one subject discussed more often in the book of Exodus than this section, which covers the construction and the design of the tabernacle. It is the lengthiest section in the book of Exodus. 38% of the book is not dedicated to merely Moses. It's not dedicated to the law. It's not dedicated to the plagues. 38% is dedicated to the place where blood sacrifice was offered so Israel and any of the Gentiles who wanted to join in could approach God, be forgiven, saved, and claimed by Almighty God. 38% of the book. Man, I'm about to preach myself happy. Listen to me real carefully. 38% of the book means that it is as long as the Gospel of Mark the book of Romans, and 1 Corinthians. And it's longer than every other book of the New Testament except Matthew, Luke, Acts, and Revelation. It would be the fifth longest book in the New Testament if it were a separate book. It'd be one of the longest books in the Old Testament if it were a separate book as well. Now imagine that that's the length of the book. Now, it talks about the tabernacle, and I want you to think about the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle is a complex construction in the wilderness. All of the golden rings and all of the curtains and all of the furniture that goes into the tabernacle makes it a very complex structure. And it's not a permanent structure. It is a structure that is itinerant. It can move to place to place. And so Israel is expected to erect it and tear it down every time it moves. And then that's not all. But caring for the tabernacle, setting it up, tearing it down, serving in it, and moving it and transporting it and running the operations that should go inside of it, namely the sacrifices, is so important to God, he dedicates an entire tribe, the tribe of Levi, to operate the tabernacle. This is how important it is for God to get people to himself. That is why it is so important to him, or this demonstrates why, it is so important to him to focus on the tabernacle. It is a place where sacrifice is made so men, women, boys, and girls can return to God, meet him in redemption and forgiveness, be transformed, changed, and claimed by Almighty God. Never, ever doubt the passion of God for people in getting them to Jesus Christ. This is manifest itself through the tabernacle. And it manifested itself through a couple of Moravian missionaries as well. Dober and Nietzsche were a couple of Moravian, Moravian missionaries in the 17th century who went to the islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix and sought to reach some of the slaves on some of the plantations there. 
the owners denied them. They said, if you go there and you speak to them, you will distract them from their work. And so they were denied. And so the two of them got the notion to return home and sell themselves into slavery to be transported back to St. Thomas and St. Croix so they could join these slaves to win them to Jesus Christ. By the time they were done, by the time they were done, thousands and thousands and thousands of slaves on the plantations of St. Thomas and St. Croix had come to Jesus Christ. It was important to them because it's first important to God. It's first important to God, and it manifests itself through the ministry and the mission of the church. I don't know what you're struggling with tonight, but I want to tell you, there's a God in heaven who's got a passion for you. He loves you, and he's urging you to keep coming back to him. Don't you dare get discouraged. You keep standing up. You keep moving forward. You keep returning. You keep repenting. You keep crying out. You keep seeking, and God's going to come through. Father in heaven, thank you for the good news of the gospel.